Um, so I have one prayer, and that's uh, you don't hear my opinion today because I tend to be opinionated, so I'm hoping that doesn't bleed through. So forgive me if it does. <laughs> my wife's laughing. So, uh, okay, so we've been going through a series that's talking about what Jesus did, right? Right had a question mark at the end of that. So we've been going through a series, what Jesus did, right? Like you guys have been here for more than today. Um, so today we're talking about, or not we, I'm talking about, and hopefully you're listening, is what Jesus did about religion. So I think this is a super cool uh, topic, and when Paul and I were having breakfast, he asked me if I wanted to speak about it, and uh, I said yes, and he goes, well, just think about it and think if you have any ideas about it. And I said, well, I already have a lot of ideas about it. <laughs> so I pray that uh, his ideas are the ideas I have in my head, but... So I want to ask a question and everyone just answer and the microphone makes it seem like we're kind of not in the same room, which I hate. But uh, so what the first thing I want to go through is what we think about religion, like what our opinion is, like what we believe, what we've learned, what we've grasped, what we've assessed and kind of put into boxes and figured, OK, when I think about the word religion, what are some of the things that come to your mind like that? Somebody answer religion, just a word. Duty. OK, what else? Did you say, huh? Church, okay. What else? Yes. Antichrist, okay. What else? Law. Yep, okay. What else? Two more. I'm not going to stop for two more. What? Christ. Grace. What else? I can't hear you know that. And there's fans, which makes it worse. As the doctor told my dad, it's because of uh, powered saws and stuff in his ear, and I have the same problem. So. <laughs> All right, one more. What do you think of when you think of the word religion? Service. Okay. Death. Okay. So let me... Uh... Okay, so when we think about religion, we think about all these things. The law, I put a couple things like rules and laws and all that stuff. And then we think about one comparison that generally gets brought up, which is relationship versus religion. Like Jesus isn't religion, he's relationship, right? So there's this idea we have of that we've opposed, like in order to have one, we have the other, and they, they kind of conflict with each other, and everyone would agree with that, I would assume, at least in part or whole, whatever. So obviously what the religion did, or what religion happened, or what happened to religion, excuse me, is we came up with a bunch of different denominations, right? So Catholicism was opposed by Martin Luther, and Martin Luther began uh, the Lutheran Church, and then from the Lutheran Church, people didn't like that, so they did Methodist, and then people didn't like that religion, and so they did all these other ones. And it's all, I forgot, maybe it was you, Aaron, that said it, but was it you that said, like, that was kind of like, so the beginning of all this disunity in the church actually came from the opposition to the church as religion. So the, the Catholic Church was the church at the time, and so all these people said, oh, I don't like the way you're doing it, so I'm just going to start my own thing. And so there's a part of that that's like amazing when someone stands out for what's right. Correct? Amen to that? There's also a part of it, too, that we've kind of got this human condition, and this human condition defaults to disunity. So part of religion, part of what's happened through religion is disunity. And as we know, it says in, word, in the word that we're known by our love one for another, right? So what's the opposite of that? Our love one for another is disunity. So when we're disunified with each other, with other believers, other denominations, other, be, other beliefs in God but maybe practiced in a different way, uh, the definition of religion is actually a group of people that decide to worship and have faith in the same thing. So when we decide that our faith is different than your faith and our worship is different than your worship, then we either grow each other or we separate ourselves from each other and so that's something that's happened through this topic of religion so I want to talk about a couple things first I want to talk about what we think about religion we just went through and I want to talk about what we have done about religion so what are the things that we've done about this thing that we call religion this this belief system that we have so we believe that religion is laws and rules and antichrist and all these things that we've we've decided and determined about religion and what we don't like about it, maybe some things that we like about it. But what are some things that we don't like about it and then how that's kind of created what we've done with that. So the human condition, I've got a, a, a buddy of mine, Pastor Chris, that I've gone to Haiti with a bunch of times. And I remember I was in the back of a truck with him and we were talking. And I was just kind of like having that like, I think it was Paul conversation where Paul was like, I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I should do and all this stuff. And just being super frustrated like, man, I just... 
like I want to be more bold about the gospel. I want to be kinder to my son and to my wife. I want to be more responsible on all these things, but I'm not. You know, when I want to be, I'm not. And, and he leaned over and he goes, uh, and this guy's like an ex-addict and he's a, a believer. He runs a church down, I think, west side. Awesome, awesome guy. Just crazy dude, though. And uh, he leans over and he grabs my shirt and he says, dude, it's the skin suit, man. It's the skin suit, right? That's the problem. So realizing that we have this human condition that we default to, right? So when we're talking about anything, I feel like I'm talking super fast, so sorry. When we talk about anything and about what Jesus did, and then we compare it to what we do, we always have to understand what component of that is the skin suit and which component of it is the heart that God put in us. Amen? Okay? So... One thing that we do, one thing I've realized, and, and you know if you've listened to Courtney and I talk about anything, is that we believe that as believers, there's this camp of what we're against, right? And then there's this camp of what we're for. And although Christ did talk about some things he was against, his entire ministry was based on what he was for, right? He said it, and I'll talk about it later, I'll bring it up again, but he actually said that to Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate said, your kingdom and this and that. And he said, I actually came to the world for only one thing. One thing only. And it's to testify to the truth. So he came for one thing. It was what he was for. He wasn't here to dissuade or discredit the lie. Because that's endless, right? But he came to say, I came to testify to the truth. Testify, bring proof, right? To put it on trial. Put, it, put, put truth on trial. And so one thing that we do uh, as humans and I'm not trying to make up a ton of like mistakes we make because there's way too many for me to go through right now if I were to just share mine. But we kind of oppose the wisdom of the generations before us along with the shortcomings. And now there's a couple ideas that I have that I've just seen over the years, and it helps me to, to maybe be humble, if that's even possible, in my own life with my raising JJ or being a husband or whatever. But for example, let's bring up like parenting, right? So when we talk about parenting, we talk about like the last couple of generations that have come through. My parents are here today, so everyone should give them a hug and a kiss before they leave. But so we look at our generation before us and we look at the generation before them. And we, if we take a moment to just kind of analyze, we realize that we automatically make determinations and we adjust what we do based on what we've seen, which is totally the way God created our mind to work, right? Like if we're driving down the expressway and there's a car wreck on the other side of the street and the cars are just totaled and on fire automatically we adjust our speed, like without even thinking. It's just natural, like, wow, that's bad, I think, and I don't want to be bad, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slow down or I'm going to get in the slow lane or I'm going to suddenly be aware of who's around me. So we naturally adjust, and that's the way God created us. He built our minds that way, and he built us in his image, so our minds work, are intended to work the way his mind works. It's supposed to grow. It's supposed to uh, understand more, right? Grow in knowledge. The, you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and, the, and the, uh, whatever it is of the righteous one. In other words, it gives us like the ability to slow down, think, process, and say, okay, this is what we've learned about God. How does this affect my life? So with parenting, so we look back generations before and like my grandpa's generation and they were off to the war and they came back and there was just a lot of like just relational hurt that, that happened in that generation for a lot of reasons, a ton of reasons. And probably the main one that we can actually like grab onto is that, that most of the men were gone in the war. They came back. The women had to step up and do things that they weren't supposed to do. I mean, they, didn't, they, they weren't supposed to have to do on their own, right? Raising their families, so providing for their families all by themselves. And so there's this became this generation that was somewhat disconnected with their parents. They, they had a difficulty in that. So then we have our parents' generation, and our parents' generation came through, and the baby boomers, you know, was like, man, not only is connection important, but also like, man, we did, like our parents, we did nothing, right? We, we grew up and we had nothing. We didn't have food. We didn't have, I mean, nothing, right? So we've got a house now in the, you know, up north. We've got a house over on, you know, the east side of the country on the lake and everything else. So it all became about this stuff of like, this is what we were missing. So let's sell everything we have and, and gain this, right? And then our generation, my generation, I'll not say our, because there's a lot of people that are about 20 years younger than me, but so our generation said, man, we missed out on relationship with our parents, with that generation in, in some way or another, uh, and they were about rules and regulations and this and that, so then what we did is we said, you throw that away, right? 
Like, we have to be so intentional. And I'm not saying this based on people. Like, we can say this just based on even books. Like, if we just look at parenting books, right? The, the parenting book of last generation was who? Dobson, exactly. James Dobson, right? He stood for that generation. What's the parenting books of today? Right? Like Kevin Lehman and some of these other guys. Now, all of them, every single one of them had great wisdom. And, and some of them being believers had even deeper insight. But you can see how the generations changed and grew like we're supposed to. But you can also see how the generations said, throw all of that away and let's grab on to what's new. Like this is what we missed. Let's grab this and hold on. So some of the wisdom we threw away as a generation, if you look at some of the kids that are coming out of college and assuming that they, their parents paid for their schooling and now they got out of four years of you know, taking good exams and they should walk into a company and become the CEO within the first like two to three months because that's the way it is. Like that's the way it's supposed to be. And so the thing that we threw away as a generation, as a generation, not all of us, but as a generation, is that ethic, that, that, that work ethic, that like culture of, wait a minute, there's responsibility, there are rules, there are needs. As a, as a father, I can't just be like, oh man, it's all about just like doing what I think I need to do and someone should just figure a way to provide for me. Like if I work, I mean, somebody should find a way to pay me to do this. I mean, I feel tired at the end of the day, so... I should have food on the table, and, and I don't know why it's not there. Maybe should, someone should go shopping for me, you know? And so we have this whole, like, mentality where we throw something away. So I don't want to spend a ton of time on it, sorry, but we throw away the wisdom of the old instead of gaining from that and saying, okay, we want to hold on to this piece. But we also want to grow in this piece because there was something missing. You know why there's something missing? Because of skin suit. There's always something missing, right? But as believers, our job is to humble ourselves before the Lord and say, God, teach us what are the things that uh, I feel are missing in my life and the way that I parent and the way that I love my wife. What are the things that I'm missing and what are the things that I can look to my dad and say, man, what are the things he did awesome? I want to hold on to those and I want to keep those in my life. So another op- uh, opportunity too is like church, like dis- discipleship and, and just the way the church works, right? So you've got like my parents who all smoked weed and then found Jesus and... Uh, through the Jesus movement, right? So they came in, and my dad tells stories about him and his buddies and some of the other guys he knew riding into church on a horse bareback with no shoes and no shirt and, and all this stuff, right? So you had this entire generation that, like, heard about Jesus and, and received the gospel with such joy, and you had this church group, like Pastor Moses, right, who just loved the crap out of these people, like, loved them to death, but understood, man, there's a component of this that, like, you can't really share the gospel with your friends while you're tripping on acid. It just doesn't, like, have the same effect, right? So he, he taught them. He discipled them. He brought them in. And he realized, man, there's this, like, amazing grace for all this stuff that you guys have come through and come from, but there's these things that God put in place to protect us and to understand, like, you've got to be in the Word. It's not just like I was tripping and I heard the Holy Spirit say this, so I should just tell everyone this. It's actually was it found in the Word. And so there's this whole generation that learned and grew in discipleship because they understood fully the grace that they were given because of who they knew they were. Like, I know who I am. I know I'm redeemed, that I'm redeemed from a skin suit and a flesh and a past that's just horrible, and God's grace was sufficient in some way for me, for Jason Faraday. But also understanding that discipleship was so crucial, right? So that generation did that. Well, then that generation took that, like, wisdom and the growth and then began to say, well, wait a minute. So we have, to, we have to also, like, kind of not only enforce the things that God said are good for us, but we have to also kind of create the things. And that's actually what, like, the Pharisees did in Scripture. They had all these rules that God put through in the book of Leviticus, and it would say things like, hey, you know what? Don't, don't steal the podium from Border City Church, whatever you do, Right? And then the Pharisees were like, man, we have to be really smart about this because, like, what's technically stealing? You know what? Let's just not touch the podium, okay? So no one can touch the podium, right? I'm not kidding. Like, even here, no one touched the podium. All right, sweet. So don't touch the podium. But then they thought, man, if someone doesn't touch the podium but they're thinking about it, you know, Christ went through and said, like, even if you have ought against your brother, if you hate your brother, you've committed murder. So they're like, man, we got to be, you know what? Don't even be in the same room as the podium, okay? Like, no one's allowed in the same room as the podium. Do you guys see what I'm saying? And so all these rules got created because the intention was holiness. 
It was unity with our Father and our, and, our, and, our, and our God, right? That was the goal. But what man did is they said, okay, I've got wisdom. I'm going to grow. I'm kind of going to set this stuff aside, and I'm going to create my own way to enforce this. And so then the church began to disciple people in the way that, like, if you don't show up Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, Friday afternoon, Wednesday, and then help set up on Wednesday morning, and then prayer meeting on Saturday morning, if you didn't do at least 17 visits to the church during the week, like, we got to have a sit-down, man. What's going on? Like, are you just throwing away the gospel completely? Like, what, are you a heathen? Like, did you have a glass of wine last week? Are you kidding me? What's wrong with you, man? Don't you know that that actually sends you straight to hell? Or you see some guy smoking a cigarette outside as he's walking into church, and you're just like, God, I'm just praying that he gets saved, man. You know? Like, I just, I mean, there's no way that you could accept my arrogance and my, I mean, you could accept my arrogance and pride. I know that because even though it's uh, an abomination to you according to Proverbs, I know that there's no way nicotine is acceptable in the sanctuary of the Holy One, right? So we create all these rules. Anyway, so that's like kind of like the progression that we do when we talk about uh, the human condition, okay? So we talk about all these things, whether it's parenting or churching or whatever it is, we have this way in our own heart to say, here's what I understand and here's what I'm going to do to make sure that I accomplish what I think God wants me to accomplish. And then there's this other half, which is our actual heart. And it actually says in Scripture that God alone knows the heart. No one can know it. Who can know it? And he knows that piece, right? So like priests back in the day, we want to become the answer. We become the answer, right? The answer of not stealing then becomes, I'm going to be the answer, and I'm going to tell you, you're not allowed in the same room as the, as the podium because now I'm the answer, right? Priests were intended to risk their lives in the Holy of Holies for our redemption. So back in Scripture, in the Old Testament, they had the tent set up, right? And they had, like, the holies, the holies of holies, and it, it was the way to, to connect, right? It was a way to connect with our Father, which is, like, his heart for us. His heart for us was to connect, to be our Father, and us to be his kids, just like it talks about in, is it in Micah? Where it talks about, like, the, the, the hearts of the, the kids come after the Father, and the Father's heart's okay. Like, that's his heart. His heart is, like, whatever I have to do, to get my kids to come after me and for me to come after my kids. And so the priests actually, when they accepted the role from the Lord, the priest's role was literally to lay their life down. Like when they walked into the Holy of Holies, they had a, a rope tied to their ankle and a bell. So if someone heard the bell stop, they knew that dude was dead and they pulled him out. And why did the priest go into the Holy of Holies? He went in the Holy of Holies for the sanctification of us. For the, for the cleansing of our sins. So the priest acted as a lamb, a sacrificial lamb for us. How amazingly humble is that? Like, think about that. Could you imagine that? Whatever it was, what, yearly or every six months or whatever they did, like, you're walking in and you're going, man, I don't think I've got sin in me, but there might be something I'm not even thinking about. Like, I might have gossiped like six months without repenting for that. Right? And he walked in with the intention of, man, I'm going to go in there and I'm, I'm literally just risking my life right now for the sanctification of everyone else that I call family. So then what happened is then priests, uh, the priests, they simply became the gate instead of the bridge. So then what happened is then the priests began to say, oh my gosh, I'm the way that you get sanctified. So I kind of become the answer, right? See, God intended us all to be bridges to him right? To make a way where there isn't a way to access a father that's just pursuing and craving us. But we became, what humans became, what we become daily is we become gates. No, God's over here for sure, and I've totally got the way to open the door, but I've just got a couple questions first before I do. Just, just even multiple choice is cool. Maybe an essay, and I'll check some of the grammar, not all of it, so we can let you slide. There's a little grace, right? So we became the gate instead of the bridge, and that's what priests did. Priests became the gate instead of the bridge, right? Who was it that had all the sons? Was it Levi? Had all the sons, and all of his sons were misusing their ability in the temple. So Levi became the gate. He actually then said, oh, no, no, God, there's no judgment of my kids. I'm the gate, not the bridge of kids, man. You got this wrong. You need to go and repent. You need to figure this out. And he became the judge of his own kids instead of God being the judge and him just being the, the bridge, right? You guys see that movie, the uh, the shack or uh, the shack or whatever, and he talks about how like 
the the one lady was telling the dad like oh okay so you're the judge now you judge god and you tell him what he's supposed to and supposed to not do and so we become that so there's obviously this human condition right and there's obviously the way we think about religion there's a thing that we believe about it and then what we've done with religion meaning the definition of of being a group of people that have faith and worship a, a god a god that a create the created the universe a god that we believe in etc right so then we've done something to it. So I want to talk way more importantly um, is what Jesus thought about religion. And so I started to think about this a, a while ago. And when Paul brought this up, I just, these are some of the instant things that came to my mind. And one of the things is who invented religion? Like right now, our answers are instantly with due reason, antichrist and uh, laws and rules and judgments and all these things, right? Who invented religion? God did. God invented it. He invented the book of Leviticus, which is a whole book of laws and rules and requirements. You guys agree with me? As much as you might not like that I'm saying that right now, but he invented it. God invented religion. James 1.27, you guys know it, and as I read it, you're going to punch out probably, so please don't, but it says that true religion, religion that is pure, and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It sucks, but that's a rule. It's not a suggestion. He doesn't say if you think about it, if you feel about it, if you feel like we're kind of like, you know, we're tight, me and Jesus are homeboys, then at that point, if you feel that, then go and help an orphan out. Or if you see some lady that's on the side of the road and she's on her own, like, I mean... If we feel close, do it. If you don't, I mean, no worries. It says true religion is this, to stay undefiled by the world, right? So the book of Leviticus, the law, right? Why was the book of Leviticus written? And this is, again, just my limited study, so forgive me. But the book of the law was written for forgiveness of sins, for unity among family and a people, God's people prosperity. There's so many reasons this book of the law, these rules were written, that God intended and created religion was for these things. Forgiveness of sins, right? The shedding of blood by the lamb. We just talked about with the priest, right? God already created a way to forgive us our sins. He already created a way to, to sanctify us, to, to bring us into oneness with him. Jesus also says that obedience is love. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. And then, I think it's David, forgive me, I didn't look this up, but he says, I've hidden your law in my heart that I might not sin against you. So there's a, there's a huge, huge asset to this part of religion that we sometimes discard. The wisdom we discard along with the shortcomings, Right? So then what is the one thing Jesus was against? So to define this, because again, there's also a part of every single one of us in this room and everyone on the street and everyone across the world that has God's heart lodged in them, maybe not active, maybe not free, maybe not filled with joy or hope, but every one of us has that heart and that heart in ours automatically defaults to what his does in a part. And then we either become the gate or the bridge or we become the answer or whatever those things are. But there's a part of that heart that's his heart. So what was Jesus against? Was he against religion? Yes or no? And none of you want to answer no. No. No, he was not against religion. He invented it. He created it. And, and what I'm talking about, right, not to be confusing with the other part. And I want to clarify this because it's super, super crucial to the gospel. Was he, was he against the Pharisees? No, how could he? There's kids, right? If he's against the Pharisees, he's against me. And it says that I'm for you, right? Not against you. So there's no way he was against the Pharisees. I, I pray he wasn't because then I'm screwed. Was he against hypocrites? No. No. And I put no in here like I was going to yell it, so I'm not going to yell it because there's only six of us, but no. Just like Paul said, is this the case? And he says, heck no, in a way that was like almost like cussing back in the scripture. He says, heck no. He was opposed to anything 
or anyone that would stand between him and his kids. That is the one sole thing that Jesus Christ and God is against. Anything, anyone that stands between him and his kids, just like me. Try and mess with my kid. I'm not, I'm not a Christian in that moment, I promise you. So it is, he says a couple of things. He says to uh, a group of guys, like, it's better for you to hang a millstone around your neck than to keep one of these kids from you, from me, right? That's kind of nuts. Like, literally, I created you, but it would be better for you to die right now than for you to keep that kid from coming to me or that person. Now, obviously, we talk about kid in this situation and in this scripture when Jesus was talking, but anything in infancy, right? Anything of us, like, being like, hey, we're craving a, a savior, a father, and we want to gain acceptance, and so it's better for this priest that became the gate to put a millstone, a heavy weight around his neck and just throw himself in the river than it was for him to keep people from coming to him, right? And then we think about, like, the temple, right? Jesus in the temple. You guys know that story? Even though everyone's kind of sleepy right now? So Jesus went in the temple and he went nuts. And the reason he went nuts is because it says that you guys have created a den of thieves, right? So what was happening is that we have Leviticus that shows us, man, this is how we gain redemption, reconciliation with our Heavenly Father, and it's through sacrifice, right? Well, then there was a bunch of poor people, like people that didn't have means to come to Jesus and sacrifice anything. They didn't have a flock of sheep. They didn't even have a dove. So they were going in the temple, and there's all these money changers that are in there, all the people that are coming in the temple, and they're selling like sparrows. They're selling like just the least animal they could even think of, Right? And they were like, oh, you know what, you need this. And I know you need it because literally Jesus ain't going to forgive you unless you have this. So I don't know. Uh, I know they're usually worth a buck, but supply and demand, 10 bucks. And so these people were walking in the temple and they were selling the access to God for a profit and making it difficult for those that didn't have the means to get to a heavenly father. No wonder he went nuts, right? He flipped the tables and he went crazy. But that's why he went crazy. So, going back to what he opposed, he opposed anything that stands between him and his kids, right? And that one thing, what separates us from God? Can anyone say that? Sin. So what does Jesus hate? He hates sin. And we talk about all the time, he doesn't hate the sinner, he hates the sin, da 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 And that's totally true, but we say it flippantly, we don't understand. He hates it because it separates. The reason he hated that moment on the cross, because he said, God, why have you forsaken me? Why are we separate? Are you kidding me right now? This, 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 is what, this is where I'm at? Like I'm willing, this cup I'll bear, but the separation, I believe, is what made him sweat blood. It wasn't holding the, the weight of the world on his shoulders. It wasn't getting whipped and all that stuff, although he was fully God and fully man. So the cat and nine tails didn't feel any different for him than it would have felt for us. But with the whole purpose that he came on the earth, I doubt after 33 years, he was literally freaked out about that moment that he had already been mentally preparing for for 33 years. It was a separation. So what is Jesus against? What is God against? He's against that separation and anything that would separate his kids from him. So this is what we think about religion, right? And then I've I've explained what we do about religion, right? And religion being a belief, please be clear with me. I'm not trying to uh, change anything or confuse anyone. I'm properly defining religion for this purpose. Because the law and the rules and all these things that God put in place, they're there for the benefit of relationship. That's why they were there. The reason you would cut off the hand of a guy that stole from you is because God didn't want you stealing from your brother. It wasn't, it wasn't some mean God that just didn't care. He was like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, you're my people. If you guys can't get along, there's no way I can have this redemptive story for the rest of them. The grafted in. And God didn't, like, go through Scripture. Courtney and I were talking about this. God didn't go through create Leviticus and then after, like, a few hundred years go, oh, crap, that didn't work. I really didn't think about that. I, I, did, I, I guess I just didn't put it together that it wouldn't have worked out. And uh, Jesus, you know what? I mean, I don't know. Let's, let's brainstorm. Let's do that little circle thing and then do all the lines that come out from it and draw all the other words that always confuse me as Jason why we're doing this. But, like, let's brainstorm this. And then, oh, that's kind of a good idea, but 
but then someone else might have to die. Like, it was his story. It was the plan from the beginning. Uh, Paul talks about that law, the law only brings sin and death, right? The law brought that. It exposed that. It didn't create it. It exposed sin and death. It made it more evident and more aware. So what did Jesus do about religion? What did he do about this thing that man took from God? Took it upon himself and began to create. Threw away the wisdom of the generations before. Threw it out with the shortcomings and said, forget about that. I've got an idea, right? The reason he hated that the Pharisees in most part were like whitewashed tombs is because they pretended to be this gate or this bridge, but inside they struggle with the same things everyone else that came in the temple struggled with. So they pretended to be Jesus Christ. They pretended to be a spotless lamb. They pretended to be that, pe- that thing for the people, where the people would come in to the temple and they would say, okay, I'm going to be the one that's going to judge. I'm going to be the one that's the gate. Not based on Leviticus, based on me. Based on don't come in the same room as the podium. That's what I'm basing it on. So Jesus did something about religion. And like I said, back in uh, John 18, 37 through 38, he says, I came into, this, uh, and came into the world for this reason, to testify to the truth. And then what's crazy is the next verse, I didn't pull it up yet, but the next verse is Pontius Pilate says, like, jokingly, he says, what's truth? Just so dejected. What's truth, man? Jesus said, I came in this world. He said, if I really did have a, I, I'm, I'm of a different kingdom. Do you guys remember the story when he goes before Pontius Pilate? If you don't look it up, it's John 18, 37, and 38. So he's before Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate says, um, so evidently you're a king, huh? And Jesus says, I am a king, but not of this world. I, I'm a king of a different kingdom. And if I wanted to, my servants would come in here and rescue me in a heartbeat like that. He said, but I came into this world for one reason, and one reason only, and that's to testify to the truth. And then Pontius Pilate says, what's truth, man? And walks away. Seeing this whole thing, right? I mean, think about that. Like the Jews, the, the, the people that are God's supposed holy ones, and this book of Leviticus that's supposed to bring unity, and they're the ones literally like dragging this guy that's healing people and telling people to love each other. And they're dragging them in, him in, to kill him. Pontius Pilate's like, I mean, at that point, I, maybe, maybe uh, totally assumption, maybe he's looking at that and going, man, if they don't got it, I mean, what's, what's truth? Right? What is it? What is this truth about? So now John 14, 6 through 7, everyone turn there for me. And it's funny because I actually say turn there, which is super funny. Turn there. Everyone click there. 14, 6 through 7. And I'm going to read it out of ESV. I don't know. It doesn't matter. But just in case you're like, man, that doesn't say the same thing. So it says, Jesus said, I am the truth. 6 through 7. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is the truth. This is why Jesus came. He didn't come to forgive us of our sins because God already created a way for that. Now, in part, yes. Is it, was it in the elimination of our sins? Yes, I'm not, I'm not trying to like screw up words. But he didn't come because we needed some desperate way for God to wash our sins away. Or we needed some desperate way to be in relationship with him because... He created that in the garden. It was already there. And yes, we muddled it up, but it existed. He came for this, to redefine what the truth was. And the redefinition of the truth is you all are trying to be gates right now, and I'm the gate. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the light. Amen? Talks about the word being a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Well, Jesus is the word, right? So he says, I'm the truth, I'm the way, I'm the light. So now the access to the Father is through the Son and not the priest. Jesus came to redefine that. He said, you know what, this system, you guys have taken this wisdom and thrown it out with everything else. I'm going to redefine this. I now become the way so that everyone has access through me. Because the other way 
was too defined by human wisdom, human intention. You guys follow that? So the new truth that he defined was that. He's given us the gift of reconciliation. So he became the way, and he made us all priests, it talks about. We're all priests in our home. We're all priests. And what that means is that everyone else here, regardless of whether they're a Levite, has the ability to be a bridge for anyone to come through Jesus Christ alone to the Father. He invited those that were hypocrites, Matthew the tax collector, myself, Pharisees, Nicodemus, Zacchaeus, and the religious, the rich young ruler that had done everything according to the law. He still walked away sad. See, religion, as we have redefined it, becomes a gate instead of a bridge. But religion, the way that God himself defined it, was a list of laws and rules that brought redemption and reconciliation to his people that he loved. But because of us, just like we did in the garden, he created this garden full of everything we needed. Everything we needed in relationship with him, everything we needed with food, everything we needed with anything you could think of, he created that. But because we were unable to stay within that, he had to create something else. So outside the garden, what did he create? He created the law. And the law was a way to say, listen, you're not in my like, big covering of a perfect garden anymore. Now I've got to create all those parameters that I was already taking care of and doing. And now you guys have took it upon yourself to be responsible. Now here's what I've already set in place. So that because of the law, because of rules, because of all that, Jesus came to testify to the truth. Not because of the rules, not because of the laws, not because of the requirements, but because of our perversion of that. And so he came to testify to the truth. And he came to bring us the gospel. So the hard thing is, as a believer sometimes, when we talk about relationship versus religion, and that God's a God of grace, is that sometimes the wisdom of the past is that we throw away the requirement of the law. We throw that away. And you know what's super sad and lacking hope and lacking joy? is if the law doesn't exist in my life where I don't have to be faithful to my wife, where I don't have to coach and lead my son, where I don't have to honor my dad, none of those things are required. There is zero requirement for the gospel and grace. It's not needed. Jesus died for our sins on the cross. It's all done. It's all good. I don't need her now. And if you look in the church now, that's how a lot of us act. We function that way because we've thrown out the wisdom along with the shortcomings of the past. And we say, you know what, it's all about relationship and it's all about grace and all about love, which totally is like beyond mind-blowing that it is. But if we throw that away, the baby with the bathwater, there's suddenly no need for redemption. There's no need for the gospel. There's no current need. There was back in whatever it was, 30 B.C. actually, or whatever the date was. Jesus died on the cross. He died on the cross for our sins, and all we got to do is confess our sins if we want to, but it's kind of about relationships. So, like, I know God's good with me, regardless of what I do, but there's no need for the gospel. And you know what really, 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 really stinks is if there's no need for the gospel, there's no good news, there's no hope, there's no joy. What are we sharing? That we like Jesus and he likes us? It's like Barney. So why do you think that 5,000 aren't added to our number daily? Because there's no hope needed, so no hope given. And hope deferred makes the heart sick. Right? So the gospel. The gospel is Jesus' God's answer to a failed system that we failed. It's God's fulfillment, not the answer to religion the good news that he reconciled himself to us. See, it's not the answer to religion. Religion wasn't here and he said, oh, you know what, I've got something better. It was the fulfillment. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill the law. And the fulfillment of the law says you can't possibly attain everything that's required to be in relationship with me. And you know what, it's the same thing we have with each other. I don't have in myself what it takes to be in perfect relationship with my wife. 
it's impossible because I'm going to hurt her, because I'm going to say something that's harsh, because I'm not going to do what I said I was going to do. Something's going to happen. It's impossible for us to be in relation with anyone. This is not like a mean God that said, like, I'm going to pull all these rules up and you guys just aren't going to be able to fulfill it. We, you hear people ask that question all the time. Well, why would God put rules up if we just can't follow them? Why, why do you have friends? Because they can't be good friends all the time. It's not, it's, it's not a rule that I thought, you know what? I got to find a way to make sure my friend can't be my friend. You know what? I'm going to make this thing up. If he punches me and my son in the neck, then at that point, I can't be his friend. That's not like a way to say, I'm going to find a way to make sure I can make him not my friend. It's kind of just like, well, yeah, that, make, that makes sense. Like, let's probably not do that. So all these other rules that God created, right? He came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Without the law, there's no need for grace. I said that. God doesn't eliminate gravity so we don't break our arm. He empowers us to ride our bikes like our dads do. One doesn't defer the other. I want everyone to click to Hebrews 8. And this is the whole purpose, the whole purpose of the Old Testament, the gospel, everything else is super cool summed up in these two chapters. I'm going to read the whole thing, which I know is kind of long, but I want you to listen. And I want you to read along because I want two of your senses to be involved right now. So Jesus, the high priest of a better covenant. And that's what we talk about, law, right? There's a, there's a new covenant and, and, it, and it fulfills the law. So starting with verse 1, Hebrews 8. Now the, now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he, he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Amen. From the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstands and the tables and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain, was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having been thus made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties for us. 
but into the second only the high priest goes, and he goes but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of his people, of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But, but, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, even through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of bloods of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of, def- of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, for where a, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all his people, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the the blood both of the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. What did Jesus do about religion? He gave it all to reconcile us. Amen? And without the requirement of the law, without the requirement, there's no need for grace. There's no need for this gospel we sit here and profess. Everyone close your eyes for a second. There's a story, and I want to say it was Joshua, forgive me for not remembering, where the Israelites had gone through a time and, and they had created these don't go in the same room with the podium rules. But just like Jesus said to the church of Laodicea in Revelation, he says, but you've lost your first love. And so Joshua stands up there, and I think it was Joshua, if I'm wrong, sorry. He stands up there and he reads the law. He has them open up the law, right? And he just reads it to the people. And the people were sad because they understood that they couldn't attain what was necessary. But you guys, along with that, comes hope and joy. And hope and joy does not come from the absence of mistake or the absence of fault. Hope and joy come from redemption. 
So right now in our hearts, it's not a place of sorrow or sadness or, man, I've missed this and I missed this, but the place of, God, I'm bankrupt without you. But, but, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. And he's not going to come to deal with our sin because it's already been atoned for. He's going to come for those who are eagerly waiting for him. So for those of you right now that uh, might have a larger, deeper, whatever revelation of the gospel, I want to I want to offer what he's offered me. And what he offered me, Jason Faraday, was not to remove gravity. see what he offered me was to hold the seat behind my butt and help me to learn to ride (laughs) my friends my family here that is the good news of the gospel so right now if that does anything in your heart I want you to just spend the next three seconds Four seconds, ten seconds, just saying, Jesus, I can't do this on my own. I know that. And I'm so grateful and so excited about the hope and the joy that comes from your grace, which is not the elimination of sin or rules or laws, but actually it's the power to do the things that I cannot do on my own. Thank you that I get to be dependent on you.